Well, we have a slight shift this week from talking to the people building the companies that are providing data and analytics to insurers, or in some cases, underwriting themselves, to another really important area for insurance that is placing platforms. Now, the shift to digital requires a marketplace where buyers and sellers can transact wherever they are in the world. Face-to-face may have shifted to -to face-to-phone over the last year, but there are still few truly digital platforms for insurers for anything but the most simple transactions. We released our e-placing platforms report earlier this year, explaining what is or sometimes is not happening. Akinova, co-funded by Henri Winand, is one of the companies that is creating a platform and, importantly, has access to both the buyers and the sellers of the risk. Now, this area is becoming increasingly more important, and Henri gives some insight into how the platform operates, examples of some of their clients, and what the future might hold. Matthew Grant here, partner at Instech London, and thank you for joining us again. Or if it's your first time, well, thank you for finding us. You can learn more about platforms from our e-placing platforms report on the Instech London website, still available to download for free. Henri, delighted to have you to join us. Uh, really intrigued to learn more about Akinova. You've been hitting the uh, the headlines, or at least certainly the insurance headlines, for a number of reasons. And uh, a number of people have been asking about you. So it's great to have an opportunity to hear from you directly. So just by way of background, I'm going to quote back to you for people listening what you do. So you are an electronic marketplace for transfer and trading of insurance risk. I know this is including cyber, but I also know you're doing small things beyond cyber. Looking forward to hearing more about those. You founded the company back in 2016, your CEO and co-founder. But I was also intrigued to see you've got a PhD from Cambridge University in materials science and metallurgy, if I pronounced that correctly. And then you went on to join Rolls-Royce PLC, who make all the big fancy engines for ships and aircraft. Uh, also, welcome. Really glad you could join us. Well, thank you, Matthew. It's great to be here. What was it that led you to, first of all, getting into insurance? I thought you had a really interesting role. Uh, and then why did you decide to found Akinova? The biggest challenge that the industry sees today is the speed at which capital requirements need to meet insurance need for brand new things. You know, today, 80% of the company is intangibles. Now we're in a stage where uh, you have a cyberstorm and you therefore need to think about how do you plumb the plumbing between the insurer on one side and the capital markets on the other side, who really own the risk, and, and how to transform that plumbing in such a way that you don't cut people out, but you can genuinely create new products in a more dynamic environment, which then allows to underwrite the clients in new ways. So you can do cyber at scale and not just for a bit of ransomware and a bit of fixing the plumbing, but contingent business interruption related to that. And you can start to trade things more dynamically and allocate better uh, products for the client. On the other side, you have the capital. I can think of no industry which doesn't obsess the whole day long about optimizing the raw material. If you're building bridges, if you're building anything, you're going to be worrying about steel prices, about, you know, whatever raw material you've got. The industry needs to have that same focus on how to optimize capital. And by trading electronically, you can do that. So our goal is really simple, is insurer and broker can do more products and create more things. 
which are useful for the insurers, and on the other side, the capital owners of the risk have a better way to optimize the capital. Can you just sort of take us through, from a sort of practical point of view, how the platform actually works between the buyers and the sellers of the contracts? So today, if you are an insured or a broker, and typically one represents the, the other, the broker represents the insured, and you can't find the capacity that you look for, for a deal, you come to us. We've got a database of about 20,000 investors across most asset classes, and we'll develop those investors uh, with you for you to be able to underwrite new products. And so it's, it is the right time in a hard market to do so. Um, and so we provide the infrastructure from the our trade uh, marketing, so the pre-marketing. So here's an interesting trade. Who wants to have a look at it? Uh, all the way up to uh, the, con- the contract negotiation and then the risk transfer and then the post-trade, which is the contracts and everything gets issued electronically. Great. I'll come back to investors in a minute, but just starting at the kind of start of the process, uh, how are you getting the word out to the potential buyers of the cover. So I'm assuming it's, is it entirely a broker market or are you also working directly with insurers or even maybe some corporates? Our goal is to make the brokers uh, successful. So we work with brokers very focused on, on the few lines of business. We don't do everything to everybody. Um, and where we know that we have the capacity on the other side. A marketplace is not just about the origination of the risk, but it's also, you know, who wants to buy it. And how are you finding that education process with the brokers? Because you know, they've got the sort of conventional insurance. Typically, it's easier to sell what you know. It sounds like you're kind of helping where the conventional insurance maybe isn't suitable. And so for the broker, they can actually do more to support their client because they're actually adding on more protection as opposed to looking at something that would just be an alternative to, to more traditional insurance. Yeah, I think you need to do both. You need to be able to help people with what they do today, but do more of it more efficiently. And then you need to do a bit, enable them to do new stuff and new things, which is really exciting for their for their clients that they want to insure it. Uh, and then when it goes to capital markets, the the investors are saying alongside insurers and reinsurers are saying it is the right risk. It's presented to me to me in a way that I really like, and so I can do more things as well. Okay, uh, thanks. And then for your investors, so you mentioned 20,000 people you are in communication with. I, I mean, there's a, a very small subsection, I think about 52 uh, investment or investment funds specializing in insurance-linked securities and cap bonds and those kind of things. So they know that space quite well. But for the rest of your investors, how, you know, a couple of questions. How do you come across them and how do they gain confidence and understand what you're doing, which for many, I think is going to be a new marketplace? The good news is that they all look for new ways of deploying capital, particularly ESG is what Bloomberg thinks is about $37 trillion. In a couple of years' time from now, uh, three or four years' time, it would be about $50 trillion. That's a third of the world's AUM, right? Just hitting pause there for a moment because I want to make sure you caught what Henri said. He's quoting from a Bloomberg article from February this year. It's actually available online. $37 trillion of investment assets are related to ESG. That's environmental, societal, governments. Over one third of all assets under management. And they projected to be up to $53 trillion by 2025. Back to Henri. You need to be very careful as to how you bring the people on board so they understand what they're going to invest into. What we see very often is the more we educate investors, 
the more they look for participation in existing funds. So the good news is that we don't end up by having to service 20,000 funds, but we'll probably service our more successful existing ILS and more successful insurance players because they'll be able to aggregate more capital because they can demonstrate that they, they have these skill sets. And so as a fund, particularly the very large funds, they look to invest in existing funds as a fund of fund strategy um, and uh, look for the right managers to do so. So our goal is to make on the capital side the fund managers or insurance managers more successful because they have the electronic infrastructure to onboard more funds who look for, you know, they'll pay one or two percent of uh, management fee for that. Uh, and then they can uh, create something, you know, of scale. And for us, it works. Right, that's really helpful. And, and then you mentioned AUM. So for anybody listening that isn't familiar with AUM, I think these guys, my, my guests actually throw acronyms at me to test me, but that is assets under management for the, just, just the way of defining. Yeah. Fast that one. Good. Okay. Um, and then just for those investors again and the funds in the, in the traditional catastrophe bond market, there are some restrictions on what funds can invest in or retail investors who are investing in those funds can invest in. How does that work for, for what you're doing? Is it, I guess it's probably a wide variety out there. Is it some can and some people can't? Yeah, that's right. So we, we've taken a view to go the regulatory routes. And the regulatory framework that's been created over two years of hard work with the Bermuda Monetary Authority is global. And the way it qualified is insurance meets capital as a regulatory framework. We can do insurance, reinsurance, retro, uh, bonds, securities for as long as they're linked with an underlying of insurance. So that's very important. So it's not just about reinsurance. We do the whole, the whole spectrum. And uh, at the very start, it's really qualified institutional buyers. Hundred worth individual, so clued up investors, uh, retailers for the future. Got it. Okay. And then you mentioned BMA in there, the Bermuda Monetary Authority. Did you choose to go with them because that was you know, one of the, the sort of regulatory bodies you found that were the most uh, willing to support this and, and sort of flexible to deal with, or are there, are there other reasons for for working with them? In short, so the answer to your question is yes. And, uh, but yes, plus something. Uh, it's Bermuda is uh, placed geographically and time zone wise between two very large markets. So London and North American markets are New York. So from a location, it's pretty useful. Secondly, uh, there's good rule of law. So they are on most people's globally uh, whitelist in terms of uh, regulatory strength and uh, balance between regulations and entrepreneur. Uh, but they're also very quick. I, I have, I know very few regulators when you ask them a question on Friday afternoon, you still have an answer on Friday afternoon. And uh, for us, we've done a survey of most geographies around the world and uh, it, it was the right place. Well, I guess it helps that Friday afternoon has got four hours more in it than the Friday afternoon in the UK, but no, it's good to, good to hear they've been supported. Of course, and that and Bermuda's a big center of reinsurance as well for you know, much the same reasons you you mentioned. Um, and it would be great just to talk about some specific examples. So it is public about that you or you, you did a deal with Hiscock supported by Guy Carpenter for CyberCover. Can you talk a little bit, bit more about that? It helps to sort of bring this to life, how these things work for real. Yeah, sure. So in that particular instance, uh, it's in it's one of the the trades in the public domain. Uh, so you have a, a fund manager that owns a bunch of assets and they're exposed to, in that particular instance, it was cyber risk uh, uh, by power generation. So if you are a fund manager and you own a, a bunch of companies, which if there's no power, they're not going to do a lot, then you're worried about cyber hacking of the grid. 
and uh, we just had cyber hacking, cyber hacking over a fuel pipeline, and mm. we can see what the issues are. If uh, I recall, that particular trade was just after uh, bombing of a particular country's assets uh, in the Middle East. And they're very active in the cyber hacking. If you are then worried about what happens if uh, the grid on the East Coast US gets hacked, what happens? I need a policy. So Guy Carpenter with a broker, uh, they, uh, with Hiscox, were able to find a number of indices. So this uh, was parametric on top of, uh, of everything else, which correlated very well with the assets of the fund manager. And so Trigger was created. Uh, because it was a parametric policy, the beauty is they could use pretty much about 99% of the standard that we've gifted to accord as a parametric insurance stroke reinsurance contract. Um, and it was placed on the marketplace. The pre-negotiation happened in our data room and the, the secure data room and environment where people can make sure that the policy is doing what they need to have covered. Uh, and then the trade was done on the marketplace capacity came to it. Why? Because it could be on, underwritten, because the indices have existed, if you know where to look, they've existed for the last uh, two decades, so there's good history. Um, and as a result, capacity came up, fund left with uh, policy, underwriters knew what they were getting into uh, to deploy capacity, and the broker transacted the, uh, the uh, transaction on the marketplace. Oh, that's really helpful. Thanks. You sort of just suddenly fleshed out the bones of what's publicly available. And you, and you mentioned in passing there, but I just wanted to make sure I was clear on what you're talking about. The, the, you said you gifted the uh, contract definition, I think you said, to Accord. Can you just sort of explain what that means in, in practice? So it's important. Accord is, uh, is the standard organization for insurance or reinsurance. So they, they do most of the templates, the way to uh, communicate information and so forth. And we think that standards you don't need standards everywhere because there will be always some transactions which are bespoke and so forth. But the less people have to look at the 50-odd pages at the back of the contract and the more they can focus on the front page, which is who is the insured, what are the various credit risks, what's the risk that's being transferred, and not focus uh, months on arguing page on uh, page 55, clause 2, uh, the more there is ability for more participation from uh, more players and the more liquid you have and therefore as a, as a secondary uh, and the more people can therefore readjust the, their balance sheet in real time, which is super important. So we gifted docs to contracts that we spend ages with the initial uh, dozen or so market participants that we had to standardize that, and we give to them to accord. So it's a standard. If you're an accord member, you can just use them straight off the shelf, whether it's on a marketplace or not. Yeah, no, it's, well, it's great. I mean, there's a few others that seem to be doing that as well, which I think helps us all with that interoperability and, and kind of get away from all the sort of crazy world of the sort of different standards and things. And then also another one that is public knowledge, or certainly it's out there, I guess it's public knowledge, therefore. Uh, you, you did a deal for a win product that was underwritten by Descartes, who are also you know, well known for the, the parametric underwriting they do. Can you just talk a bit about that as well? Because obviously that wasn't cyber, that was a different peril. Yeah, it's one of our lines of business that we can talk about later. So that one was in the climate strategy line of business, uh, not a catastrophe in particular uh, event in that uh, instance. Uh, it's a an advertising company that owns a number of uh, mobile displays, a high value mobile displays. So there are more the LED type of things. 
And of course, when wind goes a cer- above a certain limit, uh, you can have a lot of damage. Um, so uh, Descartes uh, utilized the quite unique analytics, and that's the beauty of a marketplace is that you use the strength of the various participants in the ecosystem uh, to create a bespoke product for the location of those panels, uh, depending on risk, uh, which is largely wind. And at certain wind levels, then they, the policy pays out. And because they have analytics on all the um, geographies who could go down to the pixel level, um, they could underwrite it very precisely. Insured happy, because they now have something that allows them to go and buy more of these signs. Because, of course, if you go to a bank and you say, right, I've got 20 of those things, and but there's a chance in 10 that if there's a storm north of, I don't know, 100 miles an hour, 5% of that or 10% of it would be damaged. The banks lending the money for those to buy these big assets is going to say, well, are you insured? So now they have insurance. They can borrow more assets. They can grow the business faster. So everybody's happy. Yeah, and actually it's a great sort of case study for, I guess, how this whole area expands. And and then you talked a bit about analytics there. And for cyber, what tools are you using, either third-party tools or your own analytics, to help? price the contracts to help the different parties price it, whether that's cyber or, or wind or anything else? So that's a great question. We make a distinction between third-party analytics and our own, and, and there must be no overlap. So it's very clear why people come to us. So for any actuarial or technical price, so the, the, the what's it's worth from an expected loss and so forth, it is always third-party. And we absolutely do not do any of that ourselves. And that's for um, actuaries and analytics firms to come and say, hey, by working with Akinova, I can make more money because I have a batter to carry. The insured might want to be knowledgeable. The broker definitely is knowledgeable. But also the capacity providers, if they are from the existing industry, they probably have models. But if they are not, it's a new source of revenues for me. So it's a real growth opportunity as an actuary to monetize your data on the marketplace. The reason why we, we separate is the market animation, that's ours. So if I know that you buy some stuff on you know, policy, if you buy analytics or services on Monday, and you're there looking every Monday, but nobody's on the other side, analytics should be nudging the broker to say, hey, there's someone that you should talk to. And that's market animation and analytics. The price discovery is the difference between what you think you're worth and what you're really worth. That's the auction. I like that term, market animation, as well. And that independence is, of course, really important in there for the, for this, the settlement agent. Uh, and on the other thing, I mean, the two examples so far are parametric structures, but I'm assuming that the more traditional indemnity type covers are also what you can put through Akinova. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you want to have a, a feast of uh, documentation, you can do it all in the data room. It's highly secure. It's compliant with the uh, highest SOC compliance. And you can draft all you want from scratch. But generally on parametric, what's your view as to how that's, that's going to evolve? Well, there's certainly the interest is, uh, is huge now, particularly because of two reasons. One, COVID-19 has shown that if you think about indemnity, and I was going to say it's bad or good, it's just different. Indemnity, the policy gets interpreted by the underwriter at the time of a claim, and in particular if a claim is disputed. So the basis risk that you have is you thought you'd bought a policy, but actually it doesn't pay out in the way you expected it to be. 
And so that's your basis risk. Uh, so the, the choice of the wording, which is, of course, issued by the underwriter, is in that way. Okay, it's getting a bit technical here, so I'm going to jump in. Now, if you're familiar with insurance policies or parametric insurance, or indeed, if you've been listening to some of my other interviews with companies offering parametric solutions, you will know what indemnity is and what basis risk is. Now, indemnity cover is simple. That's the most common form of insurance. It's a payout related to the cost of the damage. And basis risk is the risk that what you've lost is not paid out or not paid out in full. There's a lot more of that in some of our past episodes. The parametric uh, trigger is, of course, very useful for the investors because they know they're on risk or not. But then, of course, you need to have the uh, the basis risk closed for you. Uh, two things have happened. COVID-19 has turned up, and as evidenced by some of the policies on business interruptions, they didn't quite pay out as it was expected. Eventually, they did. But if you are a medium-sized business with 27 days of cash buffer and it pays six months later, it's not useful to you. Um, and then the second thing is that there are a lot more data which are micro-monitoring what we do. And it, you don't need to wait for the Internet of Things. Uh, it's called basically the trail that you've got uh, from your phone and the trail you've got from your cards and, you know, your credit transactions. So these data lakes are there here now, and you can now monitor policy triggers whilst complying with GDPR and all the things that you expect to have for, to, to respect people's privacy. But then it creates policies which have no loss adjustment expenses mm. because it either pays or it doesn't. So that's why the attractiveness now, that's why parametric uh, is so important. On that COVID-related example, the market was talking probably almost a year ago now about looking at parametric solutions for future pandemics or maybe COVID-19 related pandemics. Of course, are very, are very different if you're going to cover something that's already out there and known about. But that's gone a bit quiet. And I know there are reasons for that as we sort of still settle out or the insurers still settle out some of the, the non-business or non-damage business interruption claims. But without giving anything away in terms of specific contracts, are you, are you seeing that there is something happening in the background around sort of future pandemic-related coverage for, for parametric? Definitely. So we are doing a number of contingent business interruptions which are related to COVID-19, no doubt, here and now. We are super active in the space. Ultimately, there need to be a government backstop, no debate. I mean, they, the balance sheet of insurance is just not big enough to uh, to take the risk. But what we have seen over the last 12 months is extraordinary. Governments have around the world gone through two routes to access the people in need of help, through taxation and through banks. Nothing or very little has gone through the insurance industry. Mm. And yet we have direct relationship with most people around the world and most businesses around the world. And none of that capital has been deployed through us. Governments can then create very quickly fund structures to back the insured. We are in the risk management business, so we are far better equipped to understand the various risks that clients have because that's what we do. Yeah, well, I see how it plays out because if you look at where the government is providing backstops or contributions or coverage, yeah, California, Florida, terrorism, floodery in the UK, I mean, they all happen post-event. No one would sort of came up with those and would have got that approved if it hadn't been a big event, and it took a bit of time. So, yeah, hopefully we will see, as you say, a government support or a backstop to, uh, and a way of using the insurance as a way of distributing both the 
the sort of coverage, but also importantly settling the claims as well. Um, but just it takes us on to the next subject, which is we talked about cyber, we touched on wind. I know you've got sort of some buckets of where you think about different other coverage. Can you just talk through what else you're actually you you're, how you're structured or what you're structuring to put on the platform? We have four thematics, and then the fifth one is the catch-all bucket. So the first category is climate strategies. We think it's super important. There are more events. They happen more regularly, and it's super important to have the capital as close as possible to risk with the right advisory so we can grow an ecosystem there. That's about new products for new type of uh, clients and be able to secretize it to bring it to a broader uh, list of investors. The second category is what we call intangibles. In there, we have cyber, contingent business interruption, anything which feels it's a risk or would be in there in due course. You're not insuring a building or a car, something physical of a tangible value. And also with a strong element of it varies the whole day long. If you think about the cyber risk, it varies the whole day long. And on the other side, the way... Uh, investors will monitor the value, the intangible outcome from it is capital markets. I price it every day through equities, bonds, and so forth. So you need to have that uh, electronic infrastructure between the two. The third bucket is credit insurance. We think that particularly that's not a secular trend. The first two are secular trends. This one is more a tactical trend. With COVID-19, there is a bow wave of credit risk coming into the market, uh, and there's a very large confusion between solvency and liquidity. So you might be liquid because you've been propped up by government loans, but you need to repay them at some point. So there will be a fair dislocation, uh, whether it's now in six months or in a year's time, some of it will unwind. So credit strategy is very important for us. And the last one is mortgage. Mortgage insurance you have about, let's say, 10 players doing most of the mortgage insurance globally. Uh, and it, it's a market that some of the market participants wants to deepen big time. And the reason why we like these four buckets is that climate is something which goes by the season. But there's a huge appetite from investors to uh, and it's ESG investment. That was ESG Investment, our friends, environment, societal and governance. The second bucket is more the resilience in an intangible way, but new. So this is a growth area. This is not a linear growth. It's, a, it's an exponential growth because most of the PNC world has some element of cyber and certainly intangible the whole day long. And of course, if you do credit, mortgage is credit to some extent or to a large extent. And credit insurance is cash to cash is every 60 to 90 days. So if I'm an investor and I can make 80 bips four times a year, I'm quite happy. I knew you're going to throw out bips in there, Henri. I now have to kind of translate that for the audience and calculate 80 bips into percentage points. So that's 0.8%. Is that right? One bip is 0.01%. <laughs> so 80 bips is 0.8%. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Good. And then just another one. I was talking to someone actually just this week who was who'd come across you and were asking if you would you also be considering crypto or non-fungible tokens, NFTs, those kind of things. So I said, well, you know, guess what? I'm talking to Henri and I'll ask him. So uh, not, I would not ask you to commit to this particular transaction, but just in general, are you looking at what's happening in that space and open to looking at some things there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, we, we do look at trends. I mean, you have to. So we separate a crypto in two things. There is the cryptocurrency, which is the payment method. 
and there will be lots of views on you know whether it's a useful thing or it's not a useful thing depending on who you talk to but it's a payment mechanism that we start to see actually in insurance happening from ransomware where people are asking to be paid in in that so suddenly you have to have a, a facility to pay not that i would condone it for that matter but that's a different issue at some point, there will be some digital currency appearing that makes sense to everybody, and, and, and you need to look at it. The other way to look at it is the distributed ledger technology. Now, for us, there is a business case there immediately, which is in the trade repository. So whenever a transaction goes through, you have a trade, and today you, you basically have it in a database. We have to report to ourselves to make sure that database hasn't been compromised. It's digital. And we also have to represent to our users that nobody's been tweaking the database. It is a lot more difficult to tweak a distributed ledger-based database than a centralized database because, of course, we have to hack everybody at the same time. So the business case for us is actually a lot cheaper from a regulatory and a compliance by going distributed ledger. And then, of course, if you have a distributed ledger, well, what's the extension of that? You can attach coins. You can attach fiat currencies. You can attach stable coins, so the halfway house between crypto and uh, fiat currencies. You can attach contracts, and everybody is happy. What we must not do is when we think of insurance industry, is think, great, everybody's going to have the same distributed ledger technology. Forget it. it. That would be boiling the ocean. We could spend half an hour talking about that topic, but I think your point about distributed ledgers as a way, I know it's not exactly how you're thinking about it, but a way of tracking provenance. And also, I think what's happening, interesting part of the NFT piece is actually that ability to you know, track the royalties and sort of payments that go back to the original artist. So I, I agree. I think this is going to split into a number of different areas, and it's still very early days, but it's for sure here to stay. Um, so I just want to come back, and just again, just get a bit practical about what you're doing. What, what would be the sort of maximum, minimum deal size that somebody could put through the platform? Currently, we seek for deals where the limit is $10 million and above, and it is more difficult for the, the deal to be placed. So the rate online are a little bit higher. So mid-single digit to mid-double digit or above, because then we have loads of investors at that mm-hmm. point. Uh, but we've gone as uh, low as doing a few, you know, the limit is 50K and the premium is a few thousand. Ultimately, at volume, it doesn't really matter because the marginal cost is IT. Henry here, part of the research team at Instech London. We believe parametric insurance will be a major theme driving change in insurance over the next decade. So to help you keep up to date, we're launching a monthly email newsletter dedicated to bringing you the latest news, insights and developments from companies offering parametric solutions. Sign up for free at instech.london slash parametric. You've got a, a very strong advisory board. You've got some good ideas here, but how do you sort of find new ideas and how, and how does that therefore feed into the choices you make that are going to scale versus just, you know, it's a good idea, but actually there's very limited upside or scale on the back of it. It's like any investor. We look at a good idea and say, is, is the end market big enough? Is, in particular, the profit pool big enough? It's great to go and mix stuff the whole day long, but if at the end of the day you leave with half a cent for your participants, you know, who cares? So is it big enough and is the profit pool big enough? First test. Second test, the people who come forward with the idea, is it a good crew? 
Third test, is there some money behind it? If the three tests are filled in, it's something that's worth looking at. Um, where are the ideas coming from? We're always very respectful. The ideas are coming, are owned by the people who come and give us the ideas. So it's not our ideas, it's theirs. And we then work from there. And, and the beauty of being a marketplace is, and in particular remaining neutral marketplace, is that people are very willing to share ideas with you. And then you say, okay, well, this is the way we could make it at scale for you. You know, the strength of a marketplace is our success comes because people around us are successful. When you just think about you as a marketplace and how successful you are, but you forget your ecosystem, and there are a few of those in social media, you tend to lose the plot. So we're neutral, we're regulated, we are there to make our ecosystem successful. What sort of words of advice would you have as a founder and CEO for, you know, again, we could spend the whole day talking about this, but just sort of, you know, a couple of takeaways for anybody, you know, advice about what it takes to build a successful company. Make a lot of mistakes and uh, go the extra mile. Push the envelope as early in your career as you can and try new things. Be curious about business model. That's the first thing. What's the potential to make money? What's the business model, right? The second thing is network a lot. So you are going to be able to go and do things because you can have calls with two or three people and that allows you to have access to 20 other people and they will believe in what you do. And then the third thing is a lot of hard work. Well, on the middle one, uh, network a lot. The great news is we are now kicking off our uh, face-to-face events with a um, live party in July. So we'll be doing face-to-face events which would be tremendous. So, uh, yeah, hopefully you can get you along to those. Uh, Lonnie, that's been very gracious of you to share so much with us. Just before I let you go, a final question. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for supporting us as Instec London. And then I would be delighted to hear and share with everybody listening, you know, why you chose to do that. It's really super simple. Uh, your network is direct with the industry and the pieces of work that you do are highly relevant to the industry and the events that you have are super well attended. I mean, so for us, it's a way of making our case, but also learning from you and from the, the rest of the industry. I mean, where you speak to the, the market participant the, the, um, the whole day long, as we are now, and I'm only as good as what I know. And uh, what I don't know is back to the known and known and unknown and knowns and all that, uh, that stuff, right? The only way you can go is to uh, learn is through people who are in the market every day. Thank you very much. And it's always good to hear a bit of Donald Rumsfeld on these things. And then finally, for anyone that's listening, and particularly a broker that is looking to do a transaction and struggling to figure out to find a solution for their client, how should they or who should they talk to in Akinova to help them get to the next stage? Either a telephone number, we have a switchboard, the good old way, or the more electronic way, inquiries at Akinova.com, or just reach out to me and uh, we'll do something that's right for the clients. Excellent. And we'll put those in the episode notes and on the website as well to make sure people can find you. Well, Henri, I'm going to let you go back. I know you have a very busy schedule. That was very helpful. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Matthew. Well, we're delighted to have Akinova as one of our corporate members. And we're talking to over 200 companies a month at Instec London now, helping insurers understand the choices they have when choosing technology partners and ensuring also that we hear directly from the organizations, new and old, big or small, that are driving innovation into the global insurance and risk management world. If you want to find out more about how we may be able to help you, whether you are an insurance company or a technology organization, please do contact me, Matthew Grant, on LinkedIn or any of us at hello at instec.london. Dot London.